0: What do we do after the fires, the floods, the pandemic?
1: We live in a crisis-rich environment.
0: How do we learn and prepare for next time? My name is Will Small and this is Olivia Wolfe.
2: We believe stories are one of the most powerful learning and evolutionary tools we have. And
0: this, this orange glow is
1: getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, this is not good.
2: So we've listened to people's stories about disaster recovery, community resilience and mental well-being.
0: firefighters to clinical psychologists there was a family that were actually um, protecting their house and they actually gave up their their Christmas lunch small business owners to communities who have experienced loss and communities that have survived together it's
2: not often that people intentionally go out of their way to get to know their neighbours these days these are conversations about what has happened what may happen how we can prepare for the future. It was an ordeal that we'll never forget.
0: This is Emergency Ready Now. This podcast is presented by Central Coast Council and lead by story, and jointly funded by the Commonwealth and the New South Wales State Government under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. The views expressed are the opinions of the individuals interviewed. Please be aware these topics may be sensitive, particularly if you have personally been affected by bushfires. If you need to talk to someone, you can always call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. One of the key reasons we're creating this podcast is a belief in the importance of storytelling. Telling your own story and listening to the stories of others can lead to personal healing. Sharing community knowledge and wisdom can help people who are struggling. And inform all of us around different ways we might be able to move through the things that are happening around us and within us. Someone who has been involved in helping our communities recover and process their stories for the last three decades is Dr Rob Gordon.
2: Rob Gordon is a clinical psychologist and works as a consultant for the Department of Health and Human Services in Victoria, Department of Education, Training and Bushfire Recovery Victoria and Red Cross Emergency Services. Rob has been integral in conversations around healing in more than 40 natural disasters throughout Australia and New Zealand. And some of these include the 1983 Ash Wednesday, 2009 Black Saturday and Black Summer 2020 bushfires. The 2011 floods in Victoria and Queensland, the Christchurch earthquake and events such as Port Arthur shootings and the Bali bombings. Rob is specialised in clinical treatment of trauma and has a passion for educating affected people and helping them to understand and manage the stresses of recovery. Rob's insights are so valuable and we have taken so many important teachings away from our conversation with him. We hope you do too.
1: I'm a clinical psychologist, so my bread and butter work is... uh is working with people and doing psychotherapy around uh, life issues of various sorts i've also all through my career run groups for children teenagers and young adults who are having struggles with social life and emotional problems probably my work uh, most years is divided between that standard clinical work and um Uh, an area of work that I've developed in working, applying the group, understanding to communities and uh, working with communities affected by large and small disasters and uh, helping people understand the recovery process. And I've often done the journey with particular individuals, but uh, it's helped me to then be able to translate that into simple language so normally I'd spend a fair bit of my time going around some of the communities and, uh, and, and talking about my experience and helping people uh, hold the sort of direction of where they're going in their own recovery.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, sounds like very interesting work. And from what I can tell, you've been doing it for a long time. I was reading a bit of your bio and you spent over 30 years sort of working around crisis situations and, and trauma and um, yeah. these kind of community recovery Um, spaces. What originally led you into that line of work, Rob?
1: Well, I was working at the Children's Hospital. I started in uh, the late 70s and the early 80s. I was working there. And when Ash Wednesday occurred in Victoria, it badly affected one of the areas in uh, the rural catchment area of the Children's Hospital. And so when a team was being put together to go out there and work there, I was asked to be part of it because of my interest in group work and the director at the time thought it would be useful to have someone with a bit of group experience. So I found myself visiting this uh, community, community of Macedon, Um, and at that stage we went up there twice a week and then it gradually tailed off. But at that stage there were very few papers written about what was needed. No one quite knew what was needed. There were various opinions and a bit of debate about whether people needed help or not. And so, you know, I found myself in the rare position of being in a position to do pioneering work, if you like, in trying to understand and observe. And it made me aware of what we take for granted in terms of people's... Embeddedness in their community as a as a real support to our, our mental health and daily life. Because really that's the defining characteristic of a disaster, isn't it? That it affects a whole community. And so you know, I found myself really trying to understand the the way in which a person's connection to their community is, is at risk for being disrupted. So that then put me on a, a pathway of trying to work out what was needed and then make uh, suggestions to the various government agencies. And they eventually invited me to be a consultant. So I've had that role since about 1989. So they given me a wide experience of events in
0: Victoria and
1: all around Australia and New Zealand.
0: Are there any that particularly stand out in your memory? I'm sure you've got an absolute wealth of memories there, but do you have a story that kind of rises to the surface as you think back on some of those incidents you've been a part of responding to? Look, one
1: of the things I say when I talk about disasters is I say every disaster is unique because the communities are different and the events are different. Even if you have a number of fires, the circumstance of the fires are different. But in another way, they're all the same. It doesn't really matter whether it's a flood or an earthquake or or a cyclone. It's the, the disruption and the property damage and the and the struggle to get on top of everything that is uh, uniform. So it's this combination of factors. And uh, I I think one of the things I've really learned is that the, the, the overwhelming impression to begin with is that we've had all these problems occur to us. Our house has been destroyed or damaged or our farm or business has been damaged. And, um, my God, we'd better get on with it and, and fix it up. And, uh, and people have very little understanding in the early days of how long it will take mm-hmm. because, in fact, it's outside people's experience. I remember being in the uh, back blocks of uh, the South Island of New Zealand, visiting a farm there after the earthquake, not, not the Kaikoura earthquake, uh, the one that occurred after the Christchurch one. It was a predominantly farming community, and this farmer told me that um, he had water reticulation pipes all over his farm. Um, He didn't really know where they were anymore because he'd done them 30, 40 years ago, and they were all broken now. He he said he he reckoned it would take him 10 years to replace that. Mm -hmm. And it's just one little example of um, how long it takes a farm to re-establish its infrastructure Earthquakes are particularly difficult because it's all under the ground. And, you know, what we have to bear in mind is that often the disaster imposes work demands over and above our normal lives. And I don't know how everybody else's life is, but mine's absolutely full up all the time anyway. So what do you do to actually get on and do the recovery? Well, you have to put something aside, and then the real cunning question is what? How do I balance? What do I put aside, and and how fast do I do it? How much do I put it aside? And so, you, you get uh, this sort of initial reaction of oh my god, head down, bum up, and go like mad. The only problem is most people won't make it before something gives. So. I could tell so many stories of people who've done that and then they find three, four years down the track, you know, they've had a serious health crisis, their health's never going to be the same, maybe their relationship's broken down, they're no longer close to their kids, they've lost interest in their career. And, you know, these are really big losses. They're not uh, predominantly not mental illness losses, They're what I call degraded quality of life. Life just isn't as good ever again. And um, I think this is the big thing to be aware of, getting into the second year, which is a long, hard slog. um, It's inevitable that it'll be slow. Mm. And so how do we treat it as a marathon. You know, The people that win the marathon are the people that start off at a speed that they can maintain right through the, to the end. Most people haven't had experience of disasters, so I don't know what to expect, so I tell them these stories. And I, um, if you read stories of disasters, as I've done for many years, um, people will often talk about the first disaster when the natural event occurs. And the second disaster comes from this degraded quality of life. That's um, preventable. Mm. And I think of, uh, I was out in um, one of the rural areas of Victoria after a bad flood, a flash flood that did quite a lot of damage. And it was quite traumatic, actually. There were some people who thought they'd lose their lives. I was out there in this little tin shed by the local oval uh, in the evening and giving this talk about floods and I gave my usual sort of introduction at a Children's Hospital working in the Macedon area. And afterwards, a man came up to me and he said, oh, "So you say you worked at Macedon. We lost our house in the Masson fire. And as a result of that, we decided to think about what we were going to do with our lives. I was working in town commuting, and we really made a, a, a sort of a... a big review of our lives, and we decided to come out here and really made a strategic decision about how they wanted the second half of their life to be so that for them, the disaster was a really important turning point where they actually had this disruption and they could choose. Um, And I think the more people can use a disaster as a decision point rather than just trying to, without thinking, replace everything they lost. But to ask the question, is that what I want? Of course, for farmers, who are often the bulk of people affected by fires, you know, they've, they've got a whole enterprise. They just really need to get it going. Uh, so these are resilient people who can get into a hole, and that's what I've learned, that um, just... Telling your story to your neighbours and to your friends and to anyone who will listen is really the first step. Sometimes it's useful to have a professional who will be able to analyse a bit and help you get hold of things. Um, But, you know, there there are many people who look back many 10, 15, 20 years later and say uh, actually some really good things have come out of it. So that's what we need to be looking for at this
0: point. Yeah, there's a number of really great great insights in what you just shared you know the idea of going slow as well as the fact that we are multifaceted beings and it's yes. it's all of these crises can be very interconnected our personal lives uh the infrastructure around us they don't kind of exist in isolation they're interconnected one of the things that yeah is inevitably going to come up in any conversation around disaster recovery and resilience is the idea of trauma. So I would just love to hear from you as a clinical psychologist, just a couple sentences on what we mean when we talk about trauma.
1: Yes, it's been uh, much more readily used. And I think it's trivialized. Any bad experience is called a trauma. I don't think that's right. If you take the word It comes from the Greek word meaning wound, injury, or damage. And in medicine, trauma medicine is the medical care of externally caused injuries. You know, you run over by a bus as opposed to having diabetes or a heart attack. An externally caused injury that damages. Now, I think a psychological trauma is, is a term we should use for an experience that is sufficiently intense as to damage uh, the mental process by which we integrate things into our memory to become part of our past and thereby tell us who we are. That's the healthy process. It's I call it uh, like a process of digestion. You know, like where food is digested into our body and makes us what we are. With trauma, what you get is an event that damages the digestive integrative process and I can't process it. So every time something reminds me of the whole experience comes back as raw and fresh as it was and I feel distressed and angry and upset and frightened and I just need to shut it down and get away with it or drink too much or do something to block it out. And this is what then starts a cycle of intrusive re-experiencing rather than remembering that I had a bad experience in the past. And so this is a process I've studied carefully. And this is where I think a lot of people who have good community connections use their social systems and community networks as their stomach. That's where they do the digestion We don't do it all in the privacy of our own head. You know, we can do a bit of it, but not all. We do it in the network where we share our experiences. So people who uh, feel comfortable communicating have got a good network, have got a good stomach, and they can process a lot of stuff. And people who are more isolated, who perhaps find it hard to put things into words and so on, they find it harder. They have to just put it away. And we can all put stuff away without doing anything about it. But if there's too much there and then we have another big event, we've got nowhere to put it. And so that's when, you know, it starts going round and round in our head. So uh, I think the, the, the key signals about trauma, this experience returns with all its emotional disturbance. Um, the, the second one is that uh, I alternate between it, it's all back there again and then I shut it down. Then I usually shut a lot more down and I feel empty and things don't feel very meaningful and I'm just going on automatic. Um, or I uh, just feel in a constant state of uneasiness and agitation and ready and waiting to see what happens. And and uh, and these sort of symptoms dis- disrupt people's lives. And I think uh, I, I've been saying to people about the coming season that... Um, we won't know what we carry from a bushfire as we go through the winter. And some aspects of it will only show up as we have the first hot day and the north wind and the first whiff of smoke from a burn-off come through the trees and things like that. Um, And that's when we'll find this sort of surge of, you know, it's not an hour trauma, but it's what we call a trigger. And that's when we need to stop and think, so oh, wait a second, this is not like last season. We've had rain, it's not a drought. Uh, there is green grass or the, you know whatever. Start thinking about the differences. The similarities will be the raw uh, sensory things, the differences are what we need to understand and what we've learned and so on. And that's where people, I think, can do a lot of important work in this coming summer by thinking about talking together, comparing their experience and uh,
0: contrasting it with last year yeah that image of the um the digestive system and the social network as as playing a part of that role is really helpful i haven't heard that before but really appreciate that helps me to understand what that looks like particularly when it is processed in a way that is uh healthy um i probably tend to think of trauma i imagine a lot of people do as as an individual thing um, is is community trauma or collective trauma a, a, a thing? And when we think about yes. you know bushfire affected communities, what does that look like? What does a, a shared or or collective trauma look like in a community? So, if you want to go back to the question of injury,
1: and uh, starting off with an individual, say, where is the injury? The trauma injures the network of assumptions expectations and generally taken for granted framework of our life the feeling that nature is benign that i can trust other people uh, and so on and the trauma smashes that we can never be quite so trusting again we'll always feel a little bit agitated i know because i live in a community that was surrounded by fire on black saturday and uh you know, it's probably taken me about six or seven years not to feel agitated by the gusty north wind, just that that movement of the wind. I, I just feel something. I'm on edge. It's faded now. Probably I'm ready for the next fire, aren't I? But uh, it's these assumption. Now, if an assumption is there, it's assumed, isn't it? And we're not aware of what we assume. We just operate within it. And therefore... The, the damage is to this network of assumptions, which is a frame of reference. And people sometimes have a lot of trouble working out just why they feel so agitated. This is where the conversation is really helpful. And it, the healing of trauma is inseparable from building up new assumptions. Now, you can build up a new assumption, which says, um, I call it a trauma-centred assumption, You can never trust the weather. It's dangerous to live in the country. I think I'm going to live in the inner urban area, in a big flat in the middle of the city. That's actually to say I'm so concerned about the danger that I'm actually losing all the values I went to live in the country for. And so I throw the baby out of the bathwater. And that's often not a recipe for being happy. And what you find is the people who've been through a natural disaster have a trauma-centred assumption based on their own disaster. Now, the better way to go is to form a new assumption that includes the possibility of a fire and then incorporates our protective behaviours and planning and, and so on into it so that I can gain a degree of control by accepting that this is something that I didn't really take so seriously before, but now I'm really thinking about it. I've got better equipment and sprinklers on my roof and, you know, and so on and so forth. And uh, and really, that's the recipe to uh, work through trauma is to accept it, get to know it, uh, understand your triggers, disarm them by understanding how it's different, and, uh, and then slowly building up a new assumption. So I, I you know, say to people that you've got to live through, this is my experience, you've got to live through a series of hot, dry, summer, blustery days with nothing bad happening and then you'll get into perspective that these terrible bushfires don't occur every hot summer's day. They are there. They're dangerous. We need to learn, but they're not going to happen every day. Uh, and so we start to settle back into a, a comfort zone where we can start to enjoy the other aspects of our life.
0: Yeah, and, and that's obviously going to be something um, to think about right now and, and over the next few years. You know, we, we live in a time where people forget very quickly about those events that have happened even just a couple months ago. The news yeah. cycle is so quick. Uh, we assume that people will have just moved on. Um, what, what do you think we need to keep in mind, you know, in terms of the next few years as we think about uh, a, the year that has been, which has kind of just been one thing after another and many of those things yeah. we would be tempted to forget. How can we do, do that well?
1: You mentioned uh, community
0: trauma, and I wanted a little bit away from that because,
1: see, if the community itself uh, works together, talks about their experience, engages in planning, cooperation, um, and is active rebuilding their assumptions to include risk of fire and what they've learned, then the community heals. But communities can end up being damaged Um, because what we often see is the fire event never affects everyone the same. It's been shown in big studies in the United States that people who live in disaster-affected communities but whose property is not damaged take twice as long to recapture their positive feelings as the people who have damage. Because I think they start to get some positive feelings as they start to see the uh, recovery taking place, but the other people have, don't have anything to be replaced. They're just living in, say, a beautiful environment where all the bush has been destroyed and the animals, mm. uh, and nothing's going to change that, you know, in a hurry. And um, and so, and what we see is the the occurrence of negative feelings. is not sort of on a balance with. Uh, positive feelings That in healthy people when they've got increased bad feelings they actually increase their good feelings and they do things together this is a problem with COVID because we can't meet together so our capacity to generate positive feelings to compensate is reduced Um, and so uh, it, it takes time and these studies show that there's no direct correlation between how profoundly people feel their lives are affected and how badly they were physically damaged. You can have a person who um, evacuates early, never feels at risk, loses their house, but they were well insured. It's upsetting. It's very upsetting. But in five years' time, they've got a new house and they've bought new furniture and, you know, they're doing all right. And then somebody else who stays and fights their fire saves their house but has a terrible traumatic experience, in the process maybe thinks their loved ones have died and they just never feel comfortable again. It's very hard for everyone to understand each other. And within those two extremes, you've got a whole range of different personal experiences. And if the community doesn't create the environment where everyone is prepared to respect each other's experience and listen to it, they never know. I never know why somebody's withdrawn or angry or hurt. Or, and it's, if we're not very careful in holding the community together, all of this tension sort of gathers around these issues and you get these deep splits in communities. Um, and we found that it, you know if we, if we commit ourselves as a community to working on it, um, these things can be worked through. The measure that's been shown in very large studies overseas that have compared things like all the communities affected by the Fukushima tsunami, the one factor that best predicts the speed of recovery, the completeness of recovery, and the number of people who return to the community is a measure they call social capital. Social capital means the network of relationships that allow people to draw on each other's knowledge and skills and networks and uh, and connections to, to get things done. Um, and, and I think this is a, a really important factor now. So healthy communities are high in this social capital measure and they do well. Communities that are split and, um, and uh, in difficulties are really like someone who's got a pre-existing illness and then gets run over by the bus. They, they really struggle. And I think we need to focus on that. But great leaders come out of communities and they can do a lot of healing.
0: Mm. Oh, There were some fascinating things you just shared. One of the things that stood out to me was just the idea that somebody who can ha- have what might be perceived as a near miss, um, actually, it's not a miss. It, it is a It is an event that will stay with them potentially in a way that, um yeah like you said is even worse than if what we what we might think on the surface would be worse that's that's really yeah. interesting it makes me think that it's so important that we listen deeply to each other that we are uh, non-judgmental in our kind of approach to each other um i imagine both of those things are ingredients that build that social capital what are some of the other things that that you know people can do to build social capital how does it get developed over time
1: see it the research shows it, it kind of doesn't matter what the organisation is about. It could be a social club, a sporting activity, a mutual aid assistance, a kind of planning consultations, whatever, as long as people get together. And it's, I think it's often the informal process of sharing experience that goes together with a sense of having a common enterprise, common enterprise, I think it takes a lot to help people move beyond their own individual perspective, I want this, to how could this be for all of us? Uh, and I think our communities probably are not so experienced in that. It was found after Black Saturday when they started asking communities for advice about what they wanted for memorials for the people who died, they'd find that people have the most different views. But if they went back to ask each of the people, why is that important to you? What does it symbolize for you? Is there another way that could be expressed? They would often find you'd you'd get people back and back to the core. And when you got to the core, actually all wanted the same thing. It's just that they wanted to express it differently. But it's quite an important social process for people to unpack that and trust each other enough to let them communicate their their core experience. So I think it's really important not to hurry decisions, but to allow people to just talk together and then sit and think and go away and, and allow themselves to see a different perspective because really the – most powerful community is the community that consists of everyone. Mm -hmm. Everyone is there. Everyone brings something. There's a wonderful feeling there which can't be replicated by any other means. And to to see that we can put the energy into that, Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of people who have developed good skills for doing that. This is a really important community building uh, sort of quality which I think touches on that uh,
0: theme of resilience, which is so important nowadays. Mm. Yeah, the shared the shared experiences, the shared stories, I love that you mentioned the informal um, sharing of those things in some of those contexts that bring us together can be um, very healing. Uh, our resilience muscles are obviously tested in some unique ways at the moment. We yeah. alluded to it in this conversation, but when you add, you know, COVID to a, a, bush, a year that started with bushfires and then, all of the other things that have happened throughout this sort of crazy uh, period of time, what do you think are some of the things we need to keep in mind or ways we need to be creative as we try to approach the next few years given what we've been through?
1: You know, um, if you go to bushfire areas at a certain point, you start to use the word resilience, you run the risk of being run out of town because a lot of people will throw that word around as though it's a solution. You've got to be resilient. Let's talk about resilience. It's very hard for people to do that when they're hurting and worrying and can't see how they're going to get out of it. But, you know, um, I've been in this field a long time, and resilience, you know, came in. It's been around for about 10 years, I'd say, as a concept. And one day uh, I sat down with a pile of dictionaries and tried to find out what it meant. And often it's used in a very simplistic way, bounce back. But when I tracked it through, I tracked it through uh, to the original Latin, which means to spring back. And the word for spring, re means back again. And uh, zile, resile, you hear politicians say, I won't resile from this decision and so on. Zile. Uh, I tracked back, I'm not sure whether this is technically correct or not, but uh, I tracked it back to the Latin word for reeds, reeds in the river, sale. Uh, Now, as soon as I saw that, I thought, that's it. Reeds fall over flat when the river floods, and then when subsides and the wind blows and the sun shines, the reeds stand up again, don't they? because they don't break. So that resilience seems to me to be where there are fundamental values, structures, uh, and so on, that can flex and deform if necessary and be set aside for a while but not destroyed. And then when circumstances permit, they can be reactivated. And... I think the resilience person is the person who knows those qualities. That comes back to the degraded quality of life. They know what to look after. I can't do it at the moment, but I really value my friends. I'm going to just keep in touch with them, and then I'll go back to spending time. Or I know the most important thing is my marriage and my family, so I'm not going to put that aside while I build my house. I'm going to actually do it slower and hang on to my family. I'm going to look after my health. You know, I, I uh, was talking about this after Black Saturday in a, one community and a woman came up to me and said, I just so much wish my husband was here listening to this because he's been out working on our block all the time, every day, weekend, et cetera, and I'm so frightened that he's, he looks unwell. I'm so frightened he's going to have a heart attack and die because that's exactly what happened to my father in the, after the 1939 fires. He worked like mad, got the house built, and then died of a heart attack after one year. And, of course, that's no good to anyone. And so it's it's this hanging on to these values that is the most uh, crucial thing. But I think we need to keep our eye on what makes life valuable and meaningful and uh, that you did in a routine way before. And am I still doing it? year in the second year and if not what am I doing instead and and is that giving me or do I have to actually stop and go back to those cores? I think resilient people are people who are very clear about what's important and what the priorities are and they don't let themselves be uh, swayed by even big things like having to rebuild a house and we know that you'll never do it as fast as you want to so may as well relax and do it as you can and look after your quality of life And if I can just tell you one other story. Absolutely. Uh, I gave a talk down in one of the Gippsland communities on this subject earlier in the year, and I got an email from a couple who said, you described exactly what was happening to us. We were running around exhausting ourselves, wondering what's the point of everything. And as a result, we've made a decision. We're not going to rebuild. We're going to use some money to refurbish a small uh dwelling we've got on our property they've got a rural property with you know some acres and we're going to live in that for two years and then we're going to decide what we're going to do so they're going to make the decision when they've got out of the state they're in now and maybe they'll then rebuild and you know redevelop their farm or maybe they'll do something completely different but that's what they've done and i could give number of examples of that of course not everyone has that luxury uh, but even if you're a farmer, I, I'll tell you this story too of a New Zealand dairy farmer who was badly flooded, and I'd done a couple of meetings in his community when I was over there, and after two years, I went for a final visit there, and they were all doing all right, and he told me this story. He said, One day, I came in absolutely exhausted from a dawn till dusk session on the tractor, and I uh, flopped down in the lounge chair in front of the telly, waiting for dinner to be dished, absolutely exhausted. And my five-year-old daughter was playing beside my chair and she just looked up and said, Paddy, yes, dear, how come you don't play with us anymore? And he said it went right in. And I realised I was losing my daughter. Mm-hmm. so uh, that night after dinner I talked to my wife we made a plan to go to the beach for two weeks as soon as we could organize it and this is a resilient fun because he knows what's important now you can imagine if he didn't have that presence of mind and he turns around and snaps at her well what do you think I'm doing we've had a flood don't you realize I've got to get the place going And she would actually just think oh okay I thought daddy's played with their daughters but apparently not mm-hmm. and perhaps never ask him again because she's she loves her dad. She doesn't want to be annoying, you know. So these are the what I call the degraded quality. There's little shifts that occur without anyone realising. And then, like the woman who told me seven years after Ash Wednesday that she and her husband were still together, but they were just good friends. You know, that's a real loss, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I don't think we need to do that, but we've got to share, share our experience. And that's what I try to do. I try to... Exp- Share pass on the experiences that people have shared with me and uh, and be a bit of conduit to make sure that we all gather the collective wisdom
0: mm. oh, rob thank you for for sharing your wisdom with me and and with the listeners to this podcast. I can tell that you um, have helped a lot of people with uh, with the way that you bring people together, enable the telling of those stories, uh, paint some really really useful pictures of uh, how we can conceive of uh, a healthy recovery and getting things back on track so just a a big thank you I've really enjoyed this conversation Uh, in summary to those who are listening maybe to those who are not impacted or have not personally been impacted by a disaster event as well as those who may be listening who did lose property or or who went through a a, a more traumatic experience personally what would be kind of your words to both those kind of listeners well to the
1: people who haven't been through it Uh, I'd say one of the most valuable things you can offer your friends or family members is interest. Just be interested in the journey, in all the ups and downs of the journey. And they will often want to talk about the same stuff over and over again. Well, it sounds like the same stuff, but if you listen very carefully, you'll find all this bit's the same, but actually they're no longer talking about this bit and they're starting to talk about that bit. And that's the progress. Listen for that. Reflect that back to them. They might not have realised they've made some progress. And just your interest in asking about it and keeping asking about it and not getting bored and and so on. And uh, to the people themselves who are struggling through this, whether it be all the other ordinary traumas we have or ordinary traumas or the other non-natural traumas or or whether we're talking about the big natural disaster it's it's very clear that people can recover but they've got to be clever about it they've got to be clear that they've been hurt and they need to heal and i think one of the important things there is this uh, uh not trying to do it by yourself um it doesn't mean you've got to go and see a professional person But very often someone with training can put you on the right track quite quickly. But certainly make sure you gather a good support system around you. And, uh, you know, I think we've got to really prescribe two things, pleasure and leisure. Enjoyment helps us find the meaning of life. And leisure is when we don't have to do anything. Haven't, we haven't got time for that, they'll say. No, you can schedule an hour and a half on Sunday afternoon. That's sacrosanct. Or better still, three hours. Or better still, an hour and a half every day. You know, where you can just stop and vegetate because that's when the digestion happens. And that's when we get life into perspective and we remember what our values are. So, look, I wish everyone uh, all the best for the, for the coming year. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, there's been a lot of learning about disasters and we're getting, we're getting better at it. And I think uh, uh, make sure that people keep using the services that are now much more readily available.
2: Rob Gordon so eloquently explains that every disaster is unique because the communities are different and the events are different. So too is the trauma that can come along with natural disasters. He spoke about digesting that trauma and how our community networks serve as a kind of stomach to help us process our own experiences. Through this conversation, we have learned more, I would say, about the importance of connection to social networks and how we can be there for those of us who have and are going through tough times. Something I took away from this conversation was that the telling of your story can be a healing process, and that we must, as Rob put it so beautifully, keep an eye on what is valuable and meaningful and focus on that. If you are caring after or know someone who is going through a hard time, the Australian Red Cross has outlined six important things that you can do to help. These include... Spending time with the stressed person without judging or demanding, offering support and a listening ear, helping with practical tasks and chores, giving them time, space and patience and not trying to talk them out of their reactions. Try to avoid saying things like you're lucky it wasn't worse or pull yourself together. They will probably feel the most supported if you let them know you are concerned, want to help and try to understand. And finally, let people talk. This is the best way for them to calm down and start thinking. You can help them without even really saying too much yourself. For more information on how to manage stress, cope through a personal crisis or to find some tips, there are more resources on the Australian Red Cross website. At www.redcross.org.au, get help, emergencies, looking after yourself. The link will also be in our show notes. What stood out to you from this conversation? One of the key themes of Emergency Ready Now is community connectedness. So, If this episode was useful for you, we encourage you to share it with someone and have a conversation about it. You can also help more people find this by giving it a rating and review on Apple Podcast or sharing it through your social media. Make sure you hit subscribe so you can listen to next week's episode as soon as it's released. Until then, let's take care of each other and continue to become emergency ready now.